0: Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1. We've been working through this important book of the Scripture, sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It gives for us so many directions for wise living, how to live our lives. And sometimes uh, the critique that has been given is that it's just about what we're to do, what we're to do, and it maybe misses the gospel of grace, that what has been done, But I don't think it's a fair criticism, as we saw last time. It's the Lord that regenerates us. He is the one that makes us His own by His grace. And then He calls us to genuine faith. And throughout the book, He's distinguishing between genuine, lively, fruit-bearing faith and everything else, things that, that don't measure up, because that's what God's created us for, for fruitful living, for abundant living. And in our section today here, and I did put it in your uh, bulletin insert here, some of the context going back to verse 16 to verse 21, but today's focus is on verses 19 to 21. But there's a bit of an inclusio, uh, bookends. There's a sandwich that James is serving up, two slices of bread and some content in the middle, and it's a Bible sandwich, the first description of the Word of God, we see in verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. And then again, He repeats Himself, speaking of the Word again in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word. The Word of truth and the implanted Word are what we've been given to direct us in everything in our lives. God didn't save us and then just say, good luck with that. He saves us, and then He gives us His Word to direct us and to instruct us. Verse 18 describes God regenerate us, brought us forth as a word of rebirth, bringing us life, regeneration. The the beginning of our Christian life starts with the Word of God. And then verse 21 describes that process of putting away filthiness and growing in righteousness. It's it's our, our sanctification, and that's a result of the implanted Word that Word that's implanted that begins to grow and flourish and bear fruit. This is how we are to receive the Word of God, that implanted Word that goes all the way back to God's promise in Jeremiah chapter 32 that the new covenant would be different. It's not just the Word that... It's not dead. It's alive. In Jeremiah 32, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. That Old Testament promise of putting His Word in our hearts is being fulfilled as we live out our lives. It was fulfilled when Paul spoke to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, and he thanked God. He thanked God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. My prayer today, as we get this Word of God sandwich served up, that we would receive it, take it in with all meekness and humility, and then live it out boldly, courageously, because that, that's what God's saved us for. That's what He's regenerated us for. Hear now God's holy and inspired Word, beginning at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, With whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. Pray together with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for what we hold in our hands, the Word of truth, the implanted Word, this Word that is able to save our souls. Lord, I pray that as we hear Your Word today, we would be a changed people. Lord, that we would give it our full attention. Lord, we depend on your Holy Spirit to illuminate, Lord, to convict us by what we read, to comfort us with the same Scriptures, and Lord, to empower us, because that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us by the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we want to be doers, not just hearers. We want to take in the truth, but we want to live it in our lives. It's impossible by ourselves, so we come to You humbly asking that You would work and that You would bring glory to Your, to your name through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The truth is living. The truth is faithfully hard. Living faithfully is hard work. But God faithfully guides us, God doesn't leave us alone, He directs us by His Word and what we need to do is to receive it, receive it with humility. And I love the fact that James here is going to give us some direction, he's going to give us some guidance, he's going to give us a principle that when we understand, when we listen, when we have a teachable spirit, the Word of God can be unleashed in our lives to direct us in various ways, and he focuses in on our communication because we need God's Word to direct our communication. We need God's Word also to direct our passions. We need God's Word to direct us in our sanctification. And when we look to God's Word, it's life transforming. It's the only book that's able to transform lives like it does. And I want us to be encouraged to be in the Word. I hope your takeaway is I need more of that, not less of that. The problem is we live busy lives, don't we? We're going from one thing to the next to the next. We're taking trips and going on vacations. We're traveling. And it's hard for us to keep a routine. It's hard for us to be regular and steady. In our diet of the Word. And maybe some of us have high and lofty goals that I want to read through the Bible in a year, and I, and I hope that, that some of you are able to do that. But I hope that you're not reading through the Bible just to check a box, that you're not just taking in the Word of God so much and so quickly that you're not letting it sink in, not letting it truly direct you in how you live. we got to slow down, and that's what I want to do this morning, slow down humble ourselves before God's Word, and demonstrate a teachable spirit as we come. I love it when students have a teachable spirit. You can tell the difference between a a student that is teachable and one that's not. I don't want us to be the one that's not. The know-it-all, the ones that aren't paying attention, the ones that are bored. Boy, if the Word of God bores us, there's not something wrong with the Word. There's something wrong with us. This Word is transforming. So, let's dig in. Let's see what the ways that God's Word should direct our communication. He says it's short and sweet in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. I need to pause there because He said that in verse 16, my beloved brothers. When somebody has something hard that they want to tell you or they want to be direct doesn't it make all the difference in the world if they said, brother, l- l- let, me, let me share something with you. I-, I need to be direct about this. And if you have a sister in Christ that can do that and a brother in Christ that can do that, wonderful. James, the brother of Jesus, does that for us here. And he says, my beloved brothers, he calls us beloved, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All right, every young person, I hope you've heard it before, if not, you're hearing it now, how many ears do you have? How many mouths do you have? God gave us two ears because we should be doing more hearing, and He gave us one mouth because we should be doing less talking. We should be listening twice as much as we are talking. And James puts that obviously right in our face, and he wants us to be quick to hear. That's not I'm giving a quick hearing. That's actually, I'm going to hear first, and then I'm going to take it in, and then I'm going to be slow to speak. Why does he have to even say this? Because our default is usually ready, fire, aim. Is it not true? We're generally in a rush, and I got, if if I got to listen to what you're going to say to me, if I got to hear, then I'm only hearing so that I know what I can say back, how I can answer that. So, the caution that we're given, be quick to hear, slow to speak. Well, that's what communication is about. Sometimes we think that communication is about me getting my point across. It, it sounds selfish, but it often just comes off like a one-way street, like I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Let me tell you what I need, what I want, and James puts at the forefront here. First, got to listen. First, got to be hearers before we can be talkers. You know, I was reading through the Proverbs this week, just, again, a plethora of wisdom for listening, and I want you to hear four principles for listening that I found helpful. The first is take your time. When you listen, don't be in a rush. Take your time. Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, if one gives an answer before he hears it, it is his folly and shame. Who wants to be a fool? No, but we act the fool if we don't take time to listen. It takes time to listen, so give it the time that it needs. Secondly, reserve your judgment. In Proverbs 18, 17, it says, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. It's really easy to go off half-cocked and say, well, I heard, but… You didn't hear the whole story. You didn't hear the rest. You didn't hear from another source. And so how you listen, listening without rushing to judgment or reserving your judgment is wise listening. Thirdly, consider the source. Now I don't say that just because some sources are more reliable than others, but every source of communication should be at least given a hearing. Now the Proverbs tell us some of the things that we should listen to. It says we should listen to truth. It says we should listen to knowledge. We should listen to wisdom. We should listen to advice. We should listen to rebuke. We should listen to our father. We should listen to our mother. These are the sources that just a cursory look at Proverbs says, you're wise if you listen to these forms of communication. I don't like the rebukes. I don't like advice sometimes, but I'm wise if I listen to it. Fourthly, in listening, don't be passive. Draw people out. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, the purposes in a man's heart are like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You ever have somebody that's really hard to, to just find out what's on their mind? Maybe one of your kids is just just an introvert and just keeps to themselves, and as a toddler, they talked and talked and talked, but now they're a teenager, and you can't get anything out of them. Be patient, reserve judgment, draw them out, and take time to kind of bring them and their feelings to the surface, their thoughts, show that they matter. Maybe we spent so much time when they're toddlers, just say, could you please be quiet, that they've decided in their teenage years, they're going to... Uh, honor that request. Now that's the listening part of things, but speaking is important as well. It's not like we should only listen. There are times to speak. How we speak, when we speak, what we speak. Again, God's Word directs us in so many ways. And I love going through Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4, I have a worksheet that somebody created that takes the second half of the chapter and walks through all the ways that Paul makes clear. the the manner which we are to communicate, four rules of communication, so to speak, so to speak. First, it's be honest. Uh, In chapter 4, Paul says, don't be false, but speak the truth, because we're members one of another. He says to speak the truth in love, and speaking involves, shocker, speaking. People can't read your minds, have you figured that out yet? Okay, so when you're called upon, you need to actually speak. Use words. Don't make assumptions that people know what you're thinking and what's on your mind. And speak truth. Be honest. Don't leave people on a a false errand, but speak directly and truthfully. Now, some of us are tempted to speak truthfully and just be abusive with the truth and be harsh with the truth. And that's why Paul says, yeah, speak the truth in love. Do that in a loving way. Put your words together. The first rule is speak, be honest. Secondly, he talks about keeping current. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give an opportunity for the devil. Work out your conflicts either by forgiving or forbearing before they become things that build resentment or bitterness. Keep current. Settle your conflicts in a timely way. Thirdly, in your speech, attack the problems, not the people. And he says this in saying no corrupt communication should come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up. Your words are powerful. Your words affect your children. Your words affect your spouse. Your words affect your friendships. The words that you come out of your mouth should not be for tearing down. Don't attack people with your words. They should be for building up. Strengthen people. And finally, act. Don't react. At the end of chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us this litany of uh, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice be put away. Those are the defaults. It's easy for us to run in those circles of anger and to just be reactive people. What's hard is to make the determination, the intentional decision to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That's exactly the way Paul lays it out. And you know why he says that? Forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's what it all boils down to. Our communication is grounded in the way that God has communicated to us He's given us His peace so we can give our peace with one another. We do that every week week in the sharing uh, and the passing of the peace, and that really should characterize the way our communication works, our listening and our speaking. Now, we move on to this last phrase in verse 19, and James expands it a little bit in verse 20. He tells us to be slow to anger. Why? for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Notice he said be slow to anger. He didn't say don't be angry. Paul did the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. He says don't let the, he says be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is something that we're called to. But the problem in verse 20 is that often the anger of our flesh, the anger of our old man, who we, are, who we were before Christ, wants to rear its ugly head. It starts to take over. But there is a righteous indignation that we should understand and emulate it, it, that, that God has. And I want us to take a, a few moments to look at that, because when we understand what the genuine article is, we'll be able to see where everything that is different than that, things that go astray. You know, you've heard this before, the way that you understand whether something is a counterfeit or not is you understand what the genuine article is, what the real currency is supposed to look like, and if it doesn't look like that, then it's not right, it's not righteous. So we need to understand the, the genuine article. God the Father is angry. Jesus the Son is angry. We're going to even see how Paul the Apostle was angry because sometimes we we have this excuse in our hearts like, well, I'm no Jesus and I'm not the Father, so there's no way ever a human being could have righteous anger. And I don't think that's the case. I think we have an example in Paul, but I get ahead of myself here. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Hebrews 3 says, is kind of a commentary on the people of God in the Old Testament before they were going to go into the Promised Land and why they were in the wilderness all the time. It says in Hebrews 3, uh, 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, Jesus was angry as well, and we probably remember those occasions, but the why of the anger is really important. Why was Jesus angry? In Mark 3, 5, it says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. That seems to be a theme of what angers God, is the hardness of people's hearts. But at the same time, his response is, and he said to the man, the man with the crippled hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and was restored. Jesus could at the same time have anger and grief, and his action can be, I'm going to heal this guy. If. Righteous anger leads to loving, caring, merciful action, then it could for us be an occasion for righteous anger. If you remember again, the more, maybe the most famous time of Jesus' anger in John 2, and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your father's house will consume you. That kind of righteous indignation of his father's house being used and misused For people's gain. Now, Jesus was angry for his father's honor. He was zealous for his father's house. But things that get me angry and probably get you angry didn't get Jesus angry. When he was spit upon, when he was mocked, when they pulled his beard, when they whipped him and beat him, hung him on a cross, how did he respond? Not in anger. He said, "'Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.'" You see, just because somebody can be angry doesn't mean it has to result in forceful and violent response. Now, when was Paul angry? This was a time in Galatians 2.11 described for us when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, and Paul says, "'I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He was showing partiality. He was being a hypocrite. And Paul did the right thing. In love for his brother, he said, this isn't right. When something isn't right and it's an offense to God and and it's working against the gospel that you're trying to proclaim, a brother... Motivated by a righteous anger, says, This isn't right, Peter. This has got to change. Because sometimes in our flesh, we're willing to let things go too long when they're seriously damaging relationships, when they're seriously offensive to God. And we need to have the courage and the, the power to take a stand. Now, to broaden this out a little bit, I see anger, I see sorrow. I see fear even as different passions, which, if used rightly, are good and productive. But when they're twisted and counterfeited, they can be so destructive. You know, anxiety or fear, when we're fearful for the right reasons, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there are righteous and right times for that passion of fear to be engaged but so often it gets sidetracked. The fear of man, the fear of tomorrow, the fear that I won't have enough. Those fears get hijacked by our flesh, and it's the same thing with sorrow, with sadness. We grieve as those who have hope. Jesus wept. There's nothing wrong with the passion. There's nothing wrong with the feelings. Uh, Sometimes, I I think early in ministry, when I would counsel people, I think I I, I gave people a guilt trip for for having any feelings, and I don't think that that's the way God has made us to be. I don't think that's the way that He gives us examples as to how we should respond, but those feelings, those passions have to be ordered by God's Word, and when they are, powerful allies for right living. And James knows that, so he doesn't forbid it. He doesn't say, just shut up. He says, speak, but be slow in your anger. Be measured. Be careful we'd have to ask the tough questions why we're angry. And when we understand what's going on in our hearts, we'll be better equipped to use that anger righteously. Later in James, James 4, he's going to deal with this problem of quarrels and fights. And he says, why are there, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You want something. The wanting isn't bad, but when it becomes something that is so important, you say, I need it, I got to have it, I will have it, and you get into making this maybe good thing even, an ultimate thing, that desire becomes idolatrous. So it gives a little window into your heart. Why are you angry? There's something misplaced in your heart. You're treasuring something more than you should. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the uh, abundance of the heart, that the mouth speaks. So, my passions, my desires, my wants, my needs, these can often become ultimates and therefore idolatrous, and they prove themselves to be counterfeits. Those emotions are not genuinely righteous. We need to run away from those, we need to repent of those. I was reading somebody's article on anger and looking at it, and uh, he quoted somebody that uh, you might remember, Nicholas Ellen, who came to our church back in March. Um, this author said, we, we don't get it right a lot of the times. God is not at the center of our concerns, which can be often. I'm not getting what I want. When I don't get what I want, that's where the problem is. Or as I've heard Nicholas Ellen sell, say, Well, I'm angry because they're not thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about me. That's really where the problem lies. It's when our selfish desires hijack, maybe even a good desire, and we get angry, or we get excessively sorrowful, or we get fearful. Those passions get hijacked by our selfish desires. When we show anger, We need to be careful that we don't just cut it off and say, I'm not going to get angry. I'm just going to zip the lip. I'm going to bite my tongue. That just internalizes that anger and makes it where you destroy yourself. Now, other of us have the problem of just blowing up. We don't clam up. We blow up, and everybody around us feels the wrath, right? And so we need to be careful, measured, and directed at where we're directing our passion. And it should be to fight sin in our lives, to fight injustice, to fight against those things that God is against, not just the things that we desire. Release that energy directly at the problem you're facing. Finally, God gives us direction for our sanctification. And that's where Paul, or James leads us in verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, this saving of your souls is not just the beginning of your salvation. It's not your, your justification. It's really your process of sanctification, your growing in Christlikeness, your putting away sin and you're putting on righteousness. This is a work of God's grace. And I want to be clear about that. Our, Our catechism in question 35 in the shorter catechism describes what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. You see, sanctification is a heart change that results in a life change. What goes on, what starts in the heart is going to show itself in our lives. And James makes it clear this happens because of the implanted Word. This implanted Word is what grows us and sanctifies us. And so, how do we hear this Word? Well, we need to receive it with meekness. Uh, it's It's a beautiful imagery of the Word being planted in, but we need to receive it. We need to be teachable as it comes. And when we receive this implanted Word, it's able to work inside our hearts where nothing else can do. The, The Word of God is more effective than anything else in changing your life and it says in hebrews 4:12 the word of god is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the v- division of soul and spirit to joints and marrow it's able to dis- discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts this word is powerful this word is life-changing And so when this Word is implanted into our hearts, and it's unleashed in our communication, unleashed in the way that our passions are directed in order, when it actually affects our day-to-day putting away filthiness, dying to sin, and putting on righteousness, amazing, miraculous things happen. And I see lives transformed by the power of God's Word, the Holy Spirit working alongside of God's Word. God does this work in our lives in tremendous ways, and the tool that He uses is His Word. Uh, you get the imagery of this sword, that like maybe a two-handed broadsword that has a, a sharpened edge on one side, sharpened on the other. I want you to imagine more of a of a scalpel, a very sharp blade that, in the hands of a careful physician or surgeon, is able to cut away the dangerous, destructive, harmful cancer infection, and it's able to promote healing and growth and the goodness that God intends for us. This is the work that God's Word can do in our hearts. I hope you have a desire for God's Word. If you don't, Lord, tell Him, grow that desire in me. Uh, Strengthen me in that. Make me want to know You and Your Word this amazing implanted word directs our communication it directs our passions it should direct every component of our sanctification and the faith to receive it with meekness and humility and the faith to live it out fruitfully that's what i want you to what i want to leave you with i want to leave you with a parable that jesus told this word picture from nature that i think goes hand in hand with what james the brother of Jesus is trying to communicate here, uh, the power of the implanted word. Jesus in Matthew 13 tells us of a sower that went out to sow seed. And they sowed some seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen to this. Have a teachable spirit, Jesus is saying. And then he goes on and explains to his disciples, and he explains to us what is meant in this parable. When the seed gets planted, what happens to that? Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in the heart. This is what was going on along the path. As for the one that was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the Word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the Word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the Word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and yields in one case a hundredfold, another case 60, and another case 30. Look, I don't know how much is going to be yielded in your life, 30, 60, or a hundredfold, but God's Word is going to produce something in your life as you with meekness sit under it. And may our soil of our hearts be tilled up, broken up if it's hard, may it be watered, by the holy spirit fertilized so that it brings forth an abundant harvest this will happen and it's a work of god's grace as he does in our hearts lord thank you that you do this work lord that you work with us in this process of growth and sanctification lord we want to be hearers of Your Word and doers of it, Lord, and we know that we can do that uh, by the power of Your Spirit at work in us. Would You, Father, help us to grow in grace? Lord, make us diligent in the exercise of the means of grace, the Word, sacraments, prayer, so that we may see Your Word lived out in our lives and bear much fruit. Lord, we pray that this would, be, would result in glory and honor to Your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.